Seeking mental health care can be overwhelming and even scary, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dr. Josephine McNary, and I'm committed to making this process easier for you. Each week, my expert guest and I unravel a different form of therapeutic intervention in order to bring comfort and understanding and to help you get back to your true self. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm excited to have on as our guest one of the newest members of the Cal Psychiatry team, Dr. Kate Kinosh. Dr. Kinosh is a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist who specializes in the treatment of psychiatric illnesses that impact children and adolescents, including, but not limited to, mood and anxiety disorders, ADHD, and eating disorders. She also sees children struggling with behavioral issues at home or school and adolescents exploring their gender identity. She uses various treatment tools, including psychotherapy, psychoeducation, parent and family interventions, and medications to help an individual achieve their personalized goals and treatment. She is certified in family-based treatment for eating disorders and sees individuals with anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, atypical anorexia, and avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. She has multiple first author publications in peer-reviewed journals. She is co-author on the eating disorder chapter in the Dulkin Textbook for Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and a first author in the National Neuroscience Curriculum Initiatives module on the neuroscience of appetite. She received her medical degree from the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine, trained at UCSF for general adult psychiatry residency, and completed her fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry at Stanford University. She is currently practicing out of the Cal Psychiatry's Menlo Park office and over telehealth. Today, we talk about eating disorders in adolescence. Welcome, Kate. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I'm pleased to have on as our guest one of the newest members of our team, child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist, Dr. Kate Kinosh. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So today, we're going to be talking about one of your specialties, which is the treatment of eating disorders in adolescence. I'm excited. Yeah. So I wonder if we can start off by just defining for the listener what are eating disorders, what are the different types of eating disorders sure. that are out there. So eating disorders is a broad category. And, you know, in psychiatry, we use the DSM or Diagnostic Statistics Manual to define psychiatric illnesses. So eating disorders are broadly a disturbance in the way that we eat. But when people think of them, often they think of a specific subtype, which is anorexia nervosa. But that's only one type of eating disorder. And anorexia is a restriction in our nutritional intake leading to low weight gain, fear of gaining weight, and they have specific criteria to meet anorexia. But there's also other kinds. There's bulimia nervosa, which is a pattern of binging and then purging. And by purging, sometimes we do mean self-induced vomiting, but there's also other ways that people purge in order to lose those calories, such as excessive exercise. And then there's also atypical anorexia. Atypical anorexia is similar to anorexia in that it's defined by the restriction of intake, but people with atypical anorexia often do not have low body weight, but they have all the other characteristics of anorexia intense fear of gaining weight, interference with behaviors that cause gaining weight, but they don't have that significant low weight. Then there's also binge eating disorder, and that's actually similar to bulimia nervosa where there's binges or basically 
overeating to the point of feeling uncomfortably full, feeling ashamed about the amount that you ate, and eating far more than is typical in a single session, but that's not followed by a purge. And then there's a few others that we probably won't get into today. There's something called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder that's new to the DSM-5 and In summary, that's essentially like picky eating, but extremely picky eating, leading to low weight gain. We often see that with younger kids. I have a question about that. If a young child has ARFID, Mm -hmm. could it potentially then lead to anorexia or bulimia later in life, or is it not usually connected? That's a really great question. So often the kids who have ARFID have different characteristics than those who have anorexia. Sometimes the kids with ARFID are very sensory sensitive, meaning that they might not like the textures of certain foods. There's also an ARFID subtype where people have fear of vomiting or choking. So they may have had a traumatic event happen in which they are afraid of swallowing food. And then there's an ARFID subtype where people are just not interested in food. They just have no interest. Whereas anorexia is that intense fear of weight gain. So that is the key difference between the two. If someone truly has ARFID, they usually want to gain the weight and they're bothered that they're not able to eat with their peers, that eating causes so much distress. If they have this fear of gaining weight, then Basically, anorexia trumps that diagnosis. What we can see happen is sometimes we initially think someone has ARFID and that's how they present, you know, certain textures that they don't like or they just really say they're not interested in food. And then as we begin ARFID treatment and they begin to gain weight, they demonstrate how afraid they are of gaining weight. And then we realize there is an underlying anorexia. Often that can happen like in the hospital when someone gets hospitalized for this. So it's not necessarily that one leads to the other, but sometimes ARFID might mask an underlying anorexia or it started out as like a fear of choking and then they developed anorexia criteria. And we can get more into this, but what we know, even from studying mice, is that when the brain starts to starve, people can develop really intense fear of that weight gain. So when we think of it biologically with ARFID, if the brain has not gotten nutrients over time, sometimes there can be that intense fear of weight gain that develops. So instead of it being a body image situation, like it often is for anorexia nervosa, it's kind of a different pathway that leads there, but with the same result where our brain is starving and then becomes very afraid of gaining that weight. Okay. So for the purposes of our talk today, I think it's smart to just stick to the anorexia and bulimia. We could do a very long episode of all of these types of eating disorders. So One question I think is an important question next to ask is, so I know you see children of all ages. When do you typically see the anorexia, the bulimia emerge? So as with so many psychiatric diagnoses, we often are seeing them earlier these days than we used to. But typically, we see kids who come in maybe around 12-ish, but I really am, I'm being vague there on purpose because 
they can start much earlier. ARFID, which we talked about, usually starts much younger. And even with ARFID, if you look at someone's growth curves, you can see on the trajectory how they were often at low weight or started falling off their curve for much longer. We've done studies that show ARFID gets left untreated for much, much longer than anorexia. But typically when kids come in, they're around that age. But admittedly, I've seen kids much younger, eight, nine, come in with anorexia. Bulimia, again, more typically are teenagers. And there's different characteristics that kids with bulimia often have. I should make one thing very clear. If someone has self-induced vomiting, that doesn't automatically mean they have bulimia. There's a type of anorexia that's anorexia binge purge, which means that they're engaging in purging behaviors and binging behaviors, but they have that low weight criteria. Whereas with bulimia, they don't have the same low weight criteria. Often people with bulimia are trying to get to that low weight but they don't because they also have these episodes of binging. So it often is worth seeing an eating disorder specialist to distinguish between is this bulimia or is this anorexia because the treatments can vary a little bit. Right. So let's talk about the treatments. So what are the treatments out there that are evidence-based for treatment of eating disorders? So where we have the most evidence and the treatment that's been shown to have the fastest effect and the most lasting effect is called family-based treatment or FBT for short. That takes the role of the parents and gives them the job of refeeding their child. And it's in three stages. So in the initial stage, parents take control of meals. And this is a big shift. I mean, if you can imagine you have a 14-year-old, she's eighth grade or he eighth grade, freshman in high school, and the parents are in charge of basically replating their meals, deciding what they eat. It can be upsetting for a kid who's had a lot of independence before, but the idea is that the parents feel empowered to help their child regain the nutrition that they need. Again, with bulimia, when they're not malnourished, it varies a little bit, but it's the same idea. And then as the child gains their nutrition back, the child then gets more and more independence with the end goal being that the person can eat on their own again, eat independently, make food choices that will lead to a nourished body. Cognitive behavioral therapy also has evidence, and we call that CBT. And in cognitive behavioral therapy, it involves the individual. So parents are not as involved. Of course, a CBT therapist will probably often involve the parents with psychoeducation and give them tips, but it's really the person taking on that role of thinking how their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors impact their eating and trying to address some of the maladaptive thoughts that are associated with anorexia. Whereas with FBT, we actually don't focus on the maladaptive thoughts. We really focus on the behavior of eating with the idea that once our brain is nourished again, only then can we think about the right food choices. So it's just kind of a different approach, but with the end goal in both being to get renourished. But it also requires the compliance of the patient. 
Exactly. And that's why FBT has shown so much more evidence because by nature in an eating disorder, specifically anorexia or bulimia, the patient doesn't want to comply. We think of eating disorders, specifically anorexia, as egocentric, fancy word, but it means that you, as the person, really align with your eating disorder. Actually, how bulimia can differ, bulimia is more egodystonic, meaning you don't really like that you're doing this. Often people are bothered by their binging. They're quite disgusted at themselves or ashamed at themselves, and they hate that they purge. But anorexia is often done much more in secret. You don't want others to know that it's happening. And you often don't want to, when you're in that state, you don't want to get rid of the eating disorder. Of course, once people are recovered, they look back and say, wow, that was such a horrible time in my life. I was so distressed and they're happy they recovered. But when you're in it, you don't necessarily want to get out of it because your cognitions are distorted. Interesting. What about medication? So it's a great question because We wish, 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 wish a medication could just cure an eating disorder. It would be so much easier if there was a treatment. But unfortunately, there's been no medication that's been shown to cure an eating disorder. And by cure an eating disorder, I mean, hey, you wake up in the morning, you take a pill, you gain weight and you want to eat and all is better. They've done some big studies on them, even medications that do cause weight gain, and those still haven't been shown to cure an eating disorder, which is honestly, in in my mind, quite fascinating because you'd think medications that lead to weight gain should obviously treat an eating disorder. And there's a lot of different thoughts about why, one of the biggest ones being compliance. Like we just talked about, if someone truly does not want to gain that weight, Why would they take a pill that's going to lead to weight gain? So we always think with eating disorders, the medication medication is food. Food is the treatment. That being said, we know that eating disorders have a whole host of what we call comorbidities or other psychiatric illnesses that can accompany it. The number one being, number ones being anxiety and depression. So... Often we might use medications to treat the underlying anxiety and depression. That said, again, it's a reason to see an eating disorder specialist because when we think about medications, we want to think about did the depression and anxiety precede the eating disorder or did they present themselves when the person developed the eating disorder? And the reason why that's important is because we know by nature of your brain starving, you will become anxious and depressed. If you can just think of a day where you didn't eat all day for whatever reasons, you're very busy, you probably felt very on edge. You might've felt episodes of crying. You might've felt tearful. We've all been hangry. Now take that to the extreme. When your brain is in a chronic starving state, you are going to be more anxious and you are going to be depressed. And It's been shown that medications that treat anxiety and depression often don't work when someone is malnourished. So parents might come and say, hey, my child is depressed and anxious, and they're absolutely correct. But until we treat that eating disorder, the anxiety and depression aren't going to get better. Now, if someone 
was depressed or had an anxiety disorder long before they had their eating disorders, then we might think about medications. But again, they're not going to be quite as effective if we're still malnourished. That leads me to ask the question about at what point is hospitalization appropriate? So hospitalization, at least in most places, is a medical hospitalization. It's not a psychiatric hospitalization. And that distinction is really important because it's actually not about the severity of your psychological symptoms. It's about your physical criteria that leads to the hospitalization. And I say that because someone might be quite disturbed in their eating disorder and their parents might think that they need hospitalization. And it's not that they're wrong in thinking that, but a hospital, uh, typically because of insurance, can only admit you if you meet certain physical criteria. So that's a certain weight criteria, a certain heart rate criteria, certain blood pressure criteria. Often it's the pediatrician who picks up on those physical signs that lead to a person being hospitalized. And then discharge is typically based on, again, physical criteria. It's unfortunate. I've worked on inpatient eating disorder units and when someone gets discharged, it absolutely does not mean that their thoughts on the eating disorder are improved. They sometimes get discharged and very clearly say, I'm going to go home and not eat. But if their heart rate has improved or their blood pressure has improved, then the hospital can't keep them. And then the other point to add is that in the hospital, it's typically a pediatric team that's leading the care. Many eating disorder hospitals have a specialized adolescent medicine team, which is a specialization out of pediatrics, and they decide the eating regimen. And then there's still psychiatry team there to think about the psychological education and thinking about therapy, but really therapy is done on an outpatient basis. And that's where the hard work often begins. So the inpatient hospitalization, can you think of it as like a forced refeeding? Is that? Yeah, essentially a nice reframe is we think of it as a reset. And so you get to the point where you're safe again. People become hospitalized because their heart rates get so low that they could stop. We really have to make sure people realize that if you are getting to the point of hospitalization, that is showing that your body is saying danger, danger. Like my heart is not strong enough right now, or my weight is so low that I need to be refed in a hospital. And it can help a person get to the point where they can safely begin treatment on an outpatient basis or begin treatment in their home. But it really is just that it's just a reset. And I say that because I like to always think about what our ultimate goal is for someone with an eating disorder. And that's to live a full life, to live a life filled with goals, dreams, values. And that's not being in a hospital, right? So we want to do everything we can to have treatment be outside of the hospital where a person can live the life that they want to live. Yeah. Another question you had mentioned, um, girls, then boys. Mm -hmm. People typically think of females as the main group that experience and suffer from eating disorders, but do you see them in boys as well? 
Absolutely. Actually, my the very first research paper I wrote about 10 years ago now on eating disorders was in looking at the differences between those who identify as boys, those who identify as girls and eating disorders. For the purpose of this talk, I'll use the gender identities of boy and girl, meaning a genetic male, genetic female. But of course, when we get into people who identify as a gender different than their sex, there's some nuances. But yes, to say boys definitely do have eating disorders. We used to quote the statistic as being about 10%, but that is a gross underestimation. It is probably far greater. I've heard people quote 25%, but I think the fact is that we don't have a great number to understand it because boys present so differently and they often don't have the low weight. So I think I mentioned a typical anorexia where I'm Someone has the same disturbances in thought about not wanting to gain weight, but they don't meet the low weight criteria. And it's a similar picture for boys in that boys have this body, often have this body ideal of wanting to have a lot of muscle mass and even sometimes to gain weight to get to that physique of like the G.I. Joe physique. And so they'll still have restriction in calories or over-exercising, or they may become very preoccupied with food, but it's eating certain foods that they believe will lead to high muscle mass. So they they don't always get noticed because it's not the same of like, hey, I'm not going to eat dinner. But the thought process is still the same, where it's a preoccupation with food, a preoccupation with the scale, a preoccupation with exercise to the point of being unhealthy. But it's really important when parents or pediatricians or psychiatrists see a boy who might not be underweight, but seems very adamant about how he's eating and very rigid in his eating or rigid in his exercise to be thinking about the possibility that something could be going on. So if a parent is listening to this, where do they find the resources to get help for their child? And how do they find the right people? How do they figure out who's a specialist, who's not? So first to say, it's really hard. And a great place to start is the National Eating Disorders Association, NEDA. That's a great website with a great amount of resources. And in that, there's often, uh, you can see if there's uh, specialists in your area. That being said, eating disorders is an area where we have a great shortage of specialists. Unfortunately, it's just a really difficult truth. So you should always start with your pediatrician. Some pediatricians are very, very, very comfortable with psychoeducation on eating disorders, others less so, but they might refer you to a pediatrician who is comfortable with that. And they're often the best place to start with figuring out who the local people in the area are that can treat it. And I should clarify one thing when I say pediatrician. So a pediatrician, if they suspect an eating disorder, will often bring a person in for regular visits to check those vital signs, those blood pressure, heart rate, 
wait to make sure a person doesn't meet criteria for hospitalization. But then it's going to be the eating disorder specialist who will do the therapy. So it's really a team model. And that's important to keep in mind because if you have an eating disorder, you should be seeing both an eating disorder specialist who will do the therapy as well as a pediatrician who will track the physical signs. So they can refer you to therapists in the area. And otherwise, you know, if you're seeing a therapist, you can ask them if they have a specialty in eating disorders. If not, they can refer you to colleagues. Similarly with a psychiatrist, the really great thing is that we've done studies on FBT, that treatment I mentioned, and it's been shown that telehealth has just as much success in treating as in person. So if you live in an area that's far from a specialist, telehealth is a great, great option and can get just as successful of results. Well, I will make sure your information is on the episode description so people can learn about you. And I will also add some other resources on there for parents or individuals kind of wanting to learn more about this. Before we end, I often ask kind of last words for the listener, that anything that you'd like to leave the listener with. Yeah, I I would, unfortunately, it's not the happiest note, but I would like to leave the listener, whether it be a parent or a person who's struggling with the important note that eating disorders do have the highest mortality of any psychiatric illness. So these need treatment. They cannot be ignored. And the earlier someone gets into treatment, the more likely they will have success faster and longer. So this is not something to wait on. Get someone into treatment. Even if you're not sure, it doesn't hurt to at least have things examined, talked about, because again, the longer someone suffers, the more malnourished they can become and the harder it gets to treat. Yeah. Thanks for being on. Thanks for having me. This has been Mind Stories with me, Josephine McNary of Cal Psychiatry. With online psychiatry in California and 13 offices throughout Southern California and the Bay Area, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, ADHD, anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com and let us help you get back to your true self. Thanks for listening to Mind Stories and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.